practice the very thing that I'm going to be speaking of today, and that is the practice of reconciliation. Reconciliation, what's that? Well, let me explain. But first, we're continuing our sermon series, The Gospel According to the Family Life of Joseph. And the whole point of this series is to see how the message of the gospel has the power to transform broken, beaten, and brutalized families and make them into sources of bountiful blessings within their home that spill over into the world that brings such rejoicing to the communities surrounding them. And today we're going to begin our study of this thing known as reconciliation. And no, I didn't misspeak. I said begin our study because it turns out that reconciliation is a very long, complicated process that it cannot be fully encapsulated in one sermon. And so today's sermon is going to be an introduction that speaks of the first requirement necessary in order to begin the process of true healing reconciliation. And so with that in mind, three things that I want to share with you in today's sermon. First, we're going to talk about families cannot abandon the call to be reconciled. Families cannot abandon the call to be reconciled. Then we're going to talk about how families cannot avoid the first requirement for reconciliation. And then we're going to end it with how families cannot reconcile without the gospel. Families cannot abandon the call to be reconciled. They cannot avoid the first requirement to be reconciled. And then finally, they cannot reconcile without the gospel. Okay, let's begin with the first point. Families cannot abandon the call to be reconciled. So as I've done in previous sermons, let me do a recap for those of you who may be visiting us for the first time. So Joseph is one of many sons of the great patriarch Jacob, but he also happens to be the most favored son of Jacob, making him the most hated and despised amongst his brothers. In fact, his brothers hate him so much, loathe him with such high degree that they do the unthinkable. They sell him off to a bunch of slave traffickers, Ishmaelites, who in turn sell him as a slave in Egypt. And as a slave of Egypt, Joseph goes through a myriad of such terrible events where he is assaulted, he is accused, he is abandoned by those he is called to serve. And yet somehow, Joseph is able to overcome it through a display of God's power and presence in his life and become the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, essentially the prime minister. All in all, 20 years have transpired from the moment he was sold into slavery to the events that we come to in our passage today. So let's now read our passage. We're starting in verse 1. It says this. Why do you look at one another? And he, Jacob, said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So, if you recall from last week's sermon, a massive famine had just hit the nation of Egypt. And in fact, it was the occasion of this famine that Joseph was able to become prime minister. Why? Because during this desperate hour, Joseph was the only person capable of coming up with a comprehensive strategic plan that would essentially save all of Egypt from mass starvation. And as we just read in this passage, we see that this famine was not confined to the borders of Egypt. No, it spilled over to the surrounding area, including the land of Canaan, where Joseph's family was living in. Okay, now. When when Jacob hears about this impressive uh, Egyptian able to abundantly provide food for his people, he commands his sons to go to Egypt in the hope that they could get grain as well and therefore survive the famine, too. Now. I want to just take a pause for just a moment and draw your attention to something that most people miss when they read Joseph's story. At this point at our text, 
Joseph had been prime minister for quite some time. The previous chapter tells us that he was prime minister seven years prior to this famine hitting. And at this point, Joseph was uh, prime minister for two additional years when Jacob ordered his sons to go to Egypt. All in all, Joseph is prime minister for nine years, almost a decade. And yet during that time, not once, not once does he make any attempt to reconnect with his family. He doesn't send a letter to his family saying, surprise, I'm alive, and guess what? I'm a big deal in Egypt, come on down. He himself doesn't show up at Jacob's door giving him the best surprise he could ever get. He doesn't even tell a spy to go check in just to make sure that his family is doing okay. He does none of it. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you at this point in Joseph's life, he was totally fine, he was totally okay of being permanently disconnected, permanently estranged from his own family. Why? Because it turns out Joseph had the mindset that so many people have when they have a falling out with their loved one. That is the mindset that says, you do you, I'll do me. Have you heard that phrase before? Hey, you know what? You do you, and I'll do me. It's something a person will say to another person, usually a very important, meaningful person, and basically say, I no longer need you to play the important role you used to have in my life. No more are we friends. No more are we brothers. No more are we siblings. No more am I your child. No more am I your parent. We are done. Move on. I don't want you in my life. That is the mindset that says, you do you, I do me. It's the belief that says, I'm totally fine. I can totally tolerate with you no longer having an active role in my life. And chances are, you know somebody who is thinking this way right now. In fact, there's probably a greater chance that some of you are thinking this way right now with an estranged loved one in your own home. Yeah? Now, if that is the case, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, especially if you consider yourself a Christian. Because the fact of the matter is that what you may be fine with, what you may be okay with, is something that God is not okay with and he is not fine. Even if you think that you're going to be totally fine, that you can tolerate being permanently estranged from your family, the God that you worship will not tolerate that with you. I mean, just look at how he is towards Joseph. When it was clear that Joseph was not going to go anywhere near his family, God orchestrated ensuring that his family would come to him by permitting a famine. Now, some of you guys are hearing this like, wait a minute, did I just hear you correctly, Pastor? Are you telling me that God permitted an actual famine, a crisis, just so that Joseph could reconcile with his brothers? Yeah. Why would this God do that? I'll tell you why. Because the God of the Bible is the God of reconciliation. The God of the Bible is the God of reconciliation. One of the things that you see over and over again in terms of how your God operates, what he prioritizes, what he values, is when people who have been broken in their relationship are restored and reconciled with each other. And because of the God of the Bible is also the God that never changes, that means that God's attitude towards Joseph's intolerance of his own family would be the same attitude he would have of anyone in terms of their estranged family and their posture towards them, including your family as well, Christian. Consider this interaction that Jesus once had with the Apostle Peter in Matthew 18, verse 21. He said this, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, just in case you're wondering, 
do not take Jesus literally here. He is not giving you an actual numeric limit in terms of when you can stop forgiving someone in your life. He's not saying, all right, guys, I'll make a deal with you. As long as you forgive someone up to 77 times, if they sin again, 78, you have my permission, cut them out of your life, you and I will be good. That's not what he's doing. Because all the Bible scholars say that Jesus is using hyperbolic language to make the simple point that there is no limit whatsoever as to when you should be willing and ready to forgive someone in your life if they truly want to be forgiven by you. And because that is true, do you realize what that means? It means so long as you and an estranged loved one still has breath on this earth, you can never abandon God's call upon you to seek reconciliation with that person. Now, of course, by saying this, I'm not saying that you are responsible of ensuring reconciliation. But what I am saying is that you should always be hoping. You should always be wanting. You should always be praying for the possibility and opportunity for there to be a moment of reconciliation in your life. Because if you're not, you're going to be completely blinded to what God is actively doing to bring this person back into your life. For Joseph, it was a famine. In your life, it could be something different. It could be that your estranged father suffers a stroke, and now a tragedy is giving an opportunity for you to possibly reconcile with him. It could be your estranged brother's son, your nephew, is diagnosed with stage 3 cancer, and now a tragedy is giving you an opportunity to possibly reconcile with your brother. It could be that your brother-in-law, married to your estranged sister, is leaving her to be with another woman, and now a tragedy is giving you an opportunity to have your sister back into your life and be reconciled with her. You see, sometimes God permits what he hates, a famine, cancer, divorce, to accomplish what he loves, reconciliation. God sometimes permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. See? And because we Christians are to love what our God loves, that means we should make an active intentionality to seek prayerfully for the opportunity for God to open up a door so that we can pursue reconciliation with those that he is calling you to reconcile with. Now, I know you hear that and you're like, Pastor, how do I do that? It just seems so complicated. It seems so hard. And you know what? You're right. It is complicated. In fact, I'm going to need another sermon next week to complete what I'm discussing with you today. But what I can at least do now is give you an introduction of telling you the first requirement necessary to begin this process of reconciliation. So let me do that now by going to my next point. Families cannot avoid the first requirement for reconciliation. Read again with me our passage starting in verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to him, no, it's as I said to you, you are spies. Now, when you first read these words, it does not appear that Joseph is at all interested in reconciling 
Because look at his behavior. He is speaking so harshly. He's so accusatory. He's saying that his brothers are spies. And if you keep on reading the passage, in verse 17, what does he do? He puts all of them in jail for three days. He puts them in custody. This kind of behavior does not seem to be the kind of a person that really wants to reconcile. This looks like a guy who wants payback. He wants revenge. But if you keep reading to his behavior, you come to find, no, Joseph really wants to be reconciled. How do I know? Because of the fact that he does not reveal his true identity. If you're familiar with Joseph's story, you might be wondering why at this point, how come Joseph doesn't reveal himself to his brothers, right? The moment he recognizes them, how come he doesn't go, guys, it's me, your little bro, like tears to me, oh, come here, right? How come he doesn't do that? The moment he, he, he sees them, knows them, but yet he also sees that they don't recognize him. How come he goes, guys, it's Joey. If you're having a hard time figuring out an answer, consider the one provided by Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid. He says this, Joseph's big question at this point was, have my brothers really changed? Breaking out into Hebrew and asking them point blank if they were sorry for what they've done to him would not have worked. Now that Joseph was the second most important person in Egypt, they would have said anything that was necessary. At this point, that would have been in their best interest, just as their treachery was previously. What's he saying? He's saying Joseph doesn't reveal his true identity to his brothers because he first wants to make sure that his brothers are capable and therefore willing to change for the better. Let me say that again. Joseph doesn't reveal his true identity because he wants to make sure that his brothers have the capability and therefore willingness to change for the better. And that, my friends, is the first requirement necessary if you truly want to begin a real process of reconciliation. The person who is wrong, the person who broke the fellowship, the person who abused the person, the person who done wrong, they need to acknowledge their need to change for the better. And Christian, man, do you guys need to know this? Because so often, so many Christians mess this up. They really mess up. They do a terrible job of trying to take this first step. Let me explain why. Do any of these statements sound familiar? Hey, I thought you Christians were supposed to love people unconditionally. I thought you Christians were supposed to forgive and forget. I thought you Christians were all about not judging other people. Any of those sound familiar? Of course it does. Because those are the statements your estranged loved ones say to you when you try to properly call them out, asking them if they're willing to change for the better. They get all defensive. They get all angry, saying, I thought it was all about forgiveness. I thought it was all about love. Are you a true Christian? And what ends up happening for many of you is that you start feeling like you're the bad guy. You start feeling like you're the villain. You start feeling like you've done wrong, even though you're simply doing what God calls you to do, right? And what do you do? You let these people back into your life without them having to even acknowledge their need for the change. And all the abuse and all the passive aggressiveness, all the toxicity that caused the severing of the relationship is now resuming back in your life because you quote-unquote reconciled, right? But the difference now could be maybe after some prolonged time passed after being estranged, you now have people in your life you're called to protect, like your spouse or your child. Now they become fresh victims of this estranged person who you let prematurely back into your life because they convinced you that you were so wrong to put the rightful onus on them to take this first required step. Christian, hear me when I say this. You cannot have a healthy, God-honoring relationship with an estranged loved one through reconciliation if you allow them to avoid this first required necessary step of having them acknowledge their need 
to change. Now, one question that you might be wondering at this point is, well, pastor, how can I tell if an estranged loved one is even open to that, is even willing to possibly consider that they need a change for the better? Well, we look at our passage, we get the answer. Starting in verse 17, it reads, And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul. When he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Rupert answered them, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So after imprisoning his brothers for three days, he releases them. Joseph releases them so they can go back and bring necessary food for their starving families. With the exception of one brother, Simeon. Right. And as Joseph is doing all this, he witnesses something that he's like, Oh my goodness, now I see the green light to keep moving forward, that I can move forward and reconcile with my brothers. What do they do? They confess their sins. They acknowledge their guilt, right? They admitted that they were the wrongful party. And they even acknowledged that whatever reckoning, whatever consequences is something they deserve, right? Joseph saw the green light that he needed so that he can keep moving forward in reconciling because the first step that his brothers needed to take, they did take. It was genuine, unedited, unfiltered confession of sin. You see how the text says that they confess their sins to one another? That's very telling. That tells us that these brothers were genuinely acknowledging their guilt. How do I know this? If you ever talk to sociologists about when societies or communities do atrocious things, they'll tell you about this phenomena called groupthink. Do you guys know what groupthink is? It's when a group of people do something collectively evil, right? And in order for them to, to not be paralyzed with guilt and shame so they can look at themselves in the mirror and just keep living their life, is that they have to come up with a twisted narrative, a twisted logic in their mind that allows them to look innocent in their own eyes, right? For 20 years, Joseph's brothers were doing groupthink with one another. Oh, he deserved it. He's a brat. Oh, he was so harsh to us. Yeah, he needed to be sold into slavery. At this point in their life, there is no groupthink going on. They're acknowledging to each other, ah, we did this. Yeah, we're not going to sugarcoat this. We're not going to filter this. We're not going to defend ourselves. We're not going to minimize it. Yes, we are guilty. That's what you need to see from your estranged loved one if you truly think there is hope for reconciliation with them. They must give you a genuine confession of sin. Not some convoluted confession of sin that really is a backward excuse and justification for why they did what they did, but genuine, unfiltered, unedited, no holds barred, true confession of sin. That is the first step necessary if you hope to be reconciled with an estranged loved one in your life. Now, it's at this point, many of you guys don't like what I'm saying to you. Not because you think what I'm saying is wrong, but because you know what I'm telling you is right. And because that is right, that also means God right now is knocking on the door of your heart and saying, are you listening, right? And you're probably thinking of that loved one right now who you haven't talked to, who you haven't interacted in months and years, and God is saying, get ready. Start praying, start planning, and prepare yourself to pursue reconciliation. But here's the God's honest truth. You want to say to the Lord, 
No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you, Lord. Why? Either because, number one, you want to stubbornly hold on to the you do you, I do me nonsense that you said maybe to that person or said to yourself when you broke it off with them. Or maybe you're afraid. You're afraid to have to ask them, hey, in order for us to move forward, I need you to admit, I need you to acknowledge what you truly did wrong to me. And you know they're, they're not going to take that well. You know there's going to be drama and flair and maybe other family members are going to come in and start triangulating, quadrilating, whatever it is, creating more drama. You just like, no, 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 I don't want to deal with that. But yet you hear God telling you right now, you can't avoid this, son. You can't avoid this, daughter. You got to do this. What do you do? The answer leads me to my final point. Families cannot reconcile without the gospel. Read with me the last section of our passage for today. Starting in verse 35, it says, As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundle of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So after the brothers go back home, with the exception of Simeon, armed with the knowledge that this Egyptian prime minister will not see them again until they bring back Benjamin, right? They come to the horrific discovery that the money they use to pay for the food has somehow, some way, made it back into their belongings. And now they're freaking out because now they're thinking the Egyptians must believe that we swindled them, that we conned them, that we stole this food from them. And now they are overwhelmed with dread. Now, of course, you and I know what actually happened. In verse 25, Joseph ordered one of his men to put his brother's money back into their belongings, right? But here's the question. Why would Joseph do that? Why would Joseph put the money back into their belongings? I mean, because think about what Joseph wants. What does Joseph want? He sees that his brothers are ready to take that first step of reconciliation. And so now there's a chance of him being reconciled with his family. He has a chance of being reunited to his father. And he also has a chance of meeting a brother he never knew, Benjamin, verse 13, right? And yet for him to put the money back in the sack, is jeopardizing all of that. After all, isn't this why he made Simeon stay with him, right? This was the insurance policy of making sure that they would eventually have to come back for him. But by putting the money back in their belongings, you are jeopardizing all of that, Joseph, because you're scaring them into thinking that if they dare to come back, they're going to be treated as thieves. Why would Joseph jeopardize his chances like this? The answer, he wouldn't. He would never do that which means the reason why he gave the money back to his brothers was not to threaten them, but for another reason. And you know what that reason is? Love. He is showing an act of love to his brothers, even if they don't recognize it. This is Joseph's way of saying, you don't have to pay for food. I am your brother. I am going to give you all that you need. No strings attached. I will give. I love you. You are my flesh. You are my blood. But here's the thing. Do you think Joseph was wise enough to know that his brothers would misinterpret, misperceive his act of love as a threat to them? Of course he would know. But did that stop him from loving his brothers in the way that he knew he needed to? It did not stop him. This is something we need to grasp, and I want you to pay attention now, okay? So often, when you attempt to be properly reconciled with an estranged loved one, 
they will perceive, misperceive your attempt to reconcile with them as a threat to them, as an act of hatred, as an act of humiliation, especially when you ask them to recognize their need to confess their sins to you. They'll be like, what? What what are you trying to do? Are you trying to tell me that you're better than me? Are you trying to embarrass me? Are you trying to humiliate me? Are you trying to hurt me? I thought you wanted us to get back together. I thought you wanted us to be family again. And now you're asking me to grovel at your feet? You're asking me to confess my sins? You're asking me to start this relationship off again with me at a lower level and you at a higher level above me? Right? So often, what you are trying to do as an act of love to them, especially in the context of reconciliation, they will misinterpret it as you trying to hate them, you trying to humiliate them, you trying to get them to hate themselves for what they did to you. And they can be so convincing with their dramatic flair that you might say, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, let, let, let's just, don't worry, you don't have to change. Let's just, let's just pick up where we left off. What happened? Reconciliation has not happened. You have killed it prematurely. How do you prevent that from happening? By remembering the gospel. That's how. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that said God would have every right to say to each and every one of us, hey, you know what? You do you, I'll do me. If you're going to be this way, if you're going to keep living in sin, if you're going to keep acting like as if I don't exist, if you're going to keep violating my commandments, you do you, I'll do me. God had every right because of our rebellion, because of our sins, because of our unfaithfulness to completely cut us out of his life so that we would never enjoy his eternal blessed presence. But God doesn't do that. What does he do? He pursues reconciliation. How? By first asking us to take the first necessary step needed to begin this process of reconciliation. Acknowledge your guilt. Confess your sins. You know, some atheists really don't like this about our faith, which is probably why they say, this is why I don't believe in your faith, or your God, Christian, because your deity requires me to grovel at his feet To basically hate myself, humiliate myself by just saying that I'm such a disgusting, wicked person. No, thank you. And they see that as as an expression of God's hatred of mankind. Is that an expression of God's mankind? Could it be that when God calls us to confess our sins, he's not doing that because he wants us to hate ourselves. He's not doing that because he wants us to feel humiliated. Could it be that actually he wants the opposite? That through the confession of sin, you avoid a real scenario, you avoid a real situation where you're going to hate yourself and be humiliated for all eternity where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What am I talking about? You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being permanently estranged from God. Hell, right? I find it so interesting in verse 38. Jacob describes this this terrible scenario he's in by saying, I'm headed towards Sheol. For those who don't know, Sheol was the Old Testament equivalent of hell, right? It was the realm of the dead. It was the realm where God's favor was turned away from a person. For Jacob, he thinks that this scenario, which in the grand scheme is Joseph's attempt to reconcile, right? He thinks this is hell. This is is the worst that could ever happen to me. I want to get out of this situation at all costs. Why? Right? But Jacob, you know there's something worse than this. There's the real hell right? Where you're really going to hate yourself, where you're really going to feel humiliated, where you're going to feel truly cursed, right? And I think that's what you need to keep in mind, Christian. Anytime you're tempted to cower away from what you need to bravely need to do if you want to be truly reconciled with your loved one, right? You need to remember there is something worse off for your loved one 
if you do not truly reconcile with them, right? You see, so often we think, okay, if, if I don't put this demand on them, things between us will be fine. It's not going to be fine. Things are going to go back the way it was. It might even get worse. And not only that, they are going to not only stay in the way that they are, toxic, sinful, abusive, they're further jeopardizing their chances of ending up in an eternal condition, in an eternal place that no person would ever want for their loved one. So here's my question. If you love your estranged loved one as you should, what should motivate you to keep pushing forward? Should it not be the well-being of your loved one, even if they accuse you that you're doing the exact opposite by asking them to do what is necessary for reconciliation? This is what I want you to hold on to, Christian. So often, many of you chicken out when it comes to doing what is necessary to reconcile. I am imploring you. God is telling you in his word, don't do that. Because not only are you robbing yourself of the joys of a reconciled relationship with that person, you are potentially enabling that person to end up in a situation where they're going to be far worse than what they think you're putting them in by trying to be reconciled with them in the first place. Do you see? I know right now some of you need to have a hard conversation with your mom, with your dad, with your brother, with your sister, right? I think it's time to really actively pray for God to give you the courageous valor that you need so that you can do what God has called you to do, what he's called you to not abandon. You cannot abandon what it means to be reconciled. As painful as it is for you to go through, Just remember what your God went through to be reconciled to you and how he was driven by love for you when you did not deserve so that you can be reconciled to him. The gospel is what gives us the proper perspective so that we don't lose our nerve in doing what we must to get right with those that God is calling you to get right with now. Not tomorrow, not next week, now. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Will you believe the gospel and live it out by actively, prayerfully seeking reconciliation with that person that you're thinking of right now? My hope and prayer is you will. And my confidence in God's spirit in you gives me courage to believe you will as well. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be with my brothers and sisters, especially after hearing a message like this that is so daunting and so unwelcome because it is so comfortable to simply think, you do you, I do me. It is so easy to avoid confrontation when confrontation is called for, when a calling out for a confession is necessary. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters who have struggled so much, being stuck between a rock and a hard place of being estranged with a loved one that they miss or maybe don't miss, and yet the burden that you are putting on them now to go and seek reconciliation. Father, give us the strength and the courage we need to do what we must so that we can truly love what you love, that you would express your heart for reconciliation in our own lives, in our own relationships, in our own families. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who feel this tug right now by your spirit for the phone call they're going to make, the email they're going to write, the text that they're going to send. Father, even through a message they will convey to a mutual friend or loved one, God, Be with them and go ahead of them and give them the green light that they have been waiting for so that they're no longer stuck in this terrible place of being permanently estranged from their loved ones. God, would you help us now? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen.